everybody. This is Jeannie Faulkner, and you're listening to Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting, the podcast where we talk about pregnancy, parenting, feminism, healthcare, food, culture, politics, and everything else, because that's what goes into this big job we have of raising our children, the next generation. No pressure, right? And about that next generation... If you've been watching the news, then you know what happened last week at a high school in Parkland, Florida. You've listened to surviving students give eloquent, impassioned, and yes, anti-gun speeches. They're angry and articulate. They're not holding back. And they're demanding that the adults in charge take some action. They're demanding that they be safe in their schools. Frankly, I could not be more proud of them. The other night... um. CNN held a town hall program where some of those students met with Florida lawmakers and a representative from the NRA, along with parents of students who had been killed. These kids asked their senator, um, Senator Marco Rubio, the hard questions like, will you quit taking campaign funds from the NRA? Which is a question journalists don't generally get a straight answer on. The teenage boy who asked it, though, in front of a large live audience and millions of viewers, kept at it and demanded answers. And now the world knows Rubio's truth. Yes, he'll keep taking the NRA's money. These kids have really sensible, achievable recommendations for how to reduce school shootings and increase their safety. One, raise the age at which people can buy firearms, specifically rifles that can be purchased now in Florida at age 18. Two, ban assault weapons. They're military rifles intended as weapons of war, and they don't have any place in our society. And three, increase school security. It's time our lawmakers listen. Yes. But more than that, it's time they implement those recommendations and now. These are the kids we're raising. This is the generation we're raising them in. This is the time in history. These kids have access to infinite information and the ability to communicate like no other generation has ever had. They've grown up with school shootings being matter of fact. They know how to make their case in short statements honed on social media. They know how to organize, gather resources, grow a community, and they know how to speak. They've read book after book about child warriors battling evil foes, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, and all those dystopian post-apocalyptic novels. They got the message. All right, they'll do it already. They'll change the world. And if you're brand new to this child-raising experience, all I can say is hang on tight. Usually, raising kids is a fairly common sense endeavor. Raising kids in this world today, however, is completely coloring outside the lines, and we're all going to have to step up our game, develop new skills and strategies. The good news is we're in it together, and we too have access to infinite information and the ability to communicate like never before. We're changing the world too. Let's change it for the better, okay? Let's shift gears. Um <clears throat> Let's see, before we get today's guest on the line, I want to remind you that if you're hunting for other parenting podcasts, you'll find them over at Parents on Demand Network, and Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is part of their curated collection. Another one is The Nourished Child with registered dietitian Jill Castle. Go check her out. Okay, now about that common sense approach I'm always talking about. You know I've said this before, but... um, Excuse me. In all those years when I was writing for magazines and websites about health topics, and all those years uh, when I was talking to patients about their health care, you know, after I'd finished the conversation or I'd finished writing about the new study or medical condition or health topic or whatever it was, virtually every conversation and every article ended with recommendations to eat right, get plenty of exercise, plenty of sleep, stress reduction, drink water, not soda, you know, all of those things. The thing is, if we made those recommendations the top priority in healthcare instead of the afterthought and instead of focusing so much on, you know, the new study drug or treatment, we'd all be better off. If we really did eat the way we're supposed to, get plenty of exercise, reduce our stress levels, sleep plenty, drink lots of water, we'd be happier, healthier, and more productive. You know, even if we do get the occasional health problem or even if we live with health problems. 
those basic common sense recommendations really are what should make up the foundation of our health and healthcare. So we're going to talk about that today, specifically about the way we eat, the way we should eat, and how that differs significantly from the way most healthcare providers tell pregnant women to eat. Uh, we're going to talk to Lily Nichols, who is a registered dietitian and nutritionist, certified diabetes educator, researcher, and author of the best-selling book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, which presents a revolutionary, nutrient-dense, lower-carb diet for managing gestational diabetes. Lily's second book, Real Food for Pregnancy, has just come out just this week, I think, and it outlines the problems with current prenatal nutrition guidelines and provides the evidence, 930 citations and counting, that supports a real food diet to optimize maternal and fetal health. Lily is also the creator of the popular blog, PilatesNutritionist.com, which is about real food, mindful eating, and pregnancy nutrition. So let's get Lily on the line. Hi, Lily. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. It's a really, really gorgeous, sunny, clear, cold day here in Portland, Oregon. Where are you? Oh, I'm in Washington State, so we have the same weather going on. Oh, nice. Where are you? What, what part of the Port state? I'm in Port Angeles. All right. Very nice. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in Tacoma and Seattle, so we're... Oh, nice. You're, yeah, you're right up the street. I know. So close. A couple hundred miles. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, then you know how blessed it is and how whiny we all get as Pacific Northwesterners in the dark months of January and February. So when you get a day like this where it's just sunshine. I know. We've had so much cloudy weather. I think I was starting to get that 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 itch that like it should be spring now itch for the sun yeah. to come back out. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I get it. Well, Lily, I want to... Let's dive in. We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, my first question for you is, who are you and what do you do? And fair warning, I already read your job title. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'll, I'll, uh, I'll jump off from there. Everyone knows okay. my specialty already. Um, I guess. Well, most- I, to- I, told them, I told them you were a dietitian, prenatal nutrition, di- gestational diabetes, best-selling author, all that. So, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, most people do know me for my work um, on gestational diabetes, the diabetes that's first diagnosed or first recognized during pregnancy. Um, Mm -hmm. And I guess since all all of my work has sort of culminated in working on gestational diabetes and working on prenatal nutrition, it's sort of um, fitting that I am where I am today, you know, releasing a second book covering uh, prenatal nutrition. Where do I start about, I don't know where to even go. I can start personal. I can start uh, yeah. professional goals. I mean, personally, I've, I've always been interested in nutrition uh, from a very young age. I was one of, those, one of those people who decided, you know, when I was in high school that I was going to study nutrition. And despite everybody saying, oh, you'll change your mind, you'll change your mind, you'll switch your major like three or four times. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it remained a passion of mine um, and, mm-hmm. and continues to, to be so <laughs> to this day. So even though mm-hmm. I've dabbled in different areas, um, you know, in my, in my career, worked as a Pilates instructor for a number of years alongside doing nutrition, everything keeps steering me back to the food side of things and specifically the the way that, you know, uh, food and nutrients are, are involved in, in helping women have good pregnancy outcomes and healthy babies. I just keep coming back that direction. Everything in the universe just like steers me that way. So here we are. Yeah. Yeah. And what else do you say about yourself when you're answering the question, who are you? Uh, I guess I would say I'm somebody who's always, um, always questioning the status quo. I think from the very beginning, if we go back to the nutrition side of things, 
you know, I came into my training with eyes wide open. I had read a lot of, um, a lot of different perspectives on nutrition coming into my training. Whereas I think a lot of dietitians come into the training with like this expectation that I'm going to be taught and this is, you know, gospel truth. Um, and I tend to come to things with a very open mind. Um, this is one way of looking at things and this is the perspective and this is why that has developed or this is why these guidelines have been, you know, made the way that they are or this is how traditional cultures did things and maybe you now looking at why those might make sense in the context of modern nutrition science. I'm always just looking at things from kind of a broad perspective and just I'm one of those yeah. people that likes to take in massive amounts of information and sort of distill it down to um, what's most important for people. So I, I take that with my nutrition work. I take that with the way that I cook. I take that with the way that I really live my life and in, <laughs> in every aspect Um just sort of get down to what's most important and get uber uber focused I mean people ask mm -hmm. how did you know I have a toddler at home and I'm, you know I've written my second book people are like how did you do it how did you write this book with like you know almost a thousand references with a toddler in the house I was just like I was uber uber focused on doing yeah. just that and also have like a really strong filter for, you know, incoming information and what it means in the context of whatever topic I happen to be researching at the time that I just get, mm -hmm. I'm just super focused, I guess I would say. Mm -hmm. I get it. I get it. Yeah. I get that question a lot too. How do you get anything done when you have all those kids and you do the thing in front of you and then you do the next thing. Yes. And yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you focused as hard as you can on doing it right. And then you do the best you can. Exactly. Yeah. You turn, I turn yeah. on and off different parts of my brain, depending on what needs to be done at any given moment. So yeah. 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 That's a, that's a helpful skill to have, whether, you know, it's career or in parenting or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So it sounds, it sounds like you came to the field of, of nutrition um, and, and sort of traditional education about nutrition looking at the big picture and with a healthy dose of cynicism. Would you say so? I would agree with that. Yes. Okay. So then let's talk about your work now. How did that, what did you do? How did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, I, I, I think I came into the place where I am now sort of backwards because I landed a, a public policy position actually with the state of California for the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program um, and was working on public policy, the nutrition and exercise portion of the public policy for gestational diabetes. And the state of California tends to be pretty progressive on their practices. So a lot of the rest of the country kind of follows what California does, but like several years after the fact. So, we, you know, California right. is really a leader on um, gestational diabetes. We had a, a bunch of amazing uh, professionals working with that organization, a lot of uh, research studies and a lot of um, professional training. So I came into it from the public policy side and then started implementing those policies in um, clinical practice when I worked under a, a perinatologist who was a specialist in gestational diabetes. And then from then, from that point on, ended up doing a lot of consulting and working on different research projects in the prenatal nutrition sphere. Um, in all of those roles, it, it became clear that the conventional prenatal dietary advice does not necessarily reflect the latest scientific evidence, nor does, when I talk about looking at things in context, doesn't necessarily provide equivalent nutritional value when you compare it to the diets consumed by traditional cultures, which foods were prized in those cultures. Some of those foods are actually almost forbidden by conventional guidelines, which was really interesting. And I became kind of disappointed that when I followed these guidelines and, and suggested these things to my clients, you know, you always want to be like the good dietitian, right? Follow the rules and, and it should work. I've worked mm -hmm. on this at the public policy level. Like I felt like I was doing the right thing. And a lot of my clients, um, blood sugar was actually getting worse and they would quote hmm. fail diet therapy and need to go on uh, high doses of insulin. And sometimes their blood sugar would get worse from what they were already doing when they started following my advice. And that's what really got me back into the seat of sort of where I came in with 
going into nutrition school, really questioning how these policies were developed, why they are what they are, and can we do better? Um, and so that ultimately led me to develop what, my, what I call my real food approach to gestational diabetes and really got me to write my first book and have led to much better outcomes, you know, much uh, less need for insulin, um, better outcomes for mother and baby. So fewer complications, baby is uh, much less likely to be born too large or have low blood sugar at birth or all these other, um, all these other issues. And, um, mm -hmm. and it's just more nutrient dense. We're providing like a better, better nutrition for, for mama and baby. So, um, from there, you know, I, I had to get the word out on gestational diabetes. I had to write that first book and I'm glad that I did. It has made a big dent. Um, even the Czech Republic, they changed their, their, uh, public policy based on the research in that book. They dropped the mandatory minimum level of carbohydrates from their recommendations, which is just so awesome and so cool that, you know, I was able to have that, have that impact. That was completely unexpected. And I hope that we'll see some of these things changing um, with other countries and with other, other guidelines out there. I well, I feel like we need to back up a little bit because we're referring to a lot of things about real food for gestational diabetes, but we haven't really discussed what you mean by real food and, and how it contrasts to the traditional model that you were instructed. Maybe we should start, we should back up a little yeah, bit. What do you think? Yeah, that so okay. by, by real food, I'm referring to foods that are found in their natural form as, as least processed as possible. A lot of people will mm -hmm. automatically think, well, okay, well, yeah, fruits and vegetables. Yes. And yes, it includes fruits and vegetables. But I, I like to take it a step further because the way in which we've been uh, told to, to, to eat has actually been pushing us away from a lot of foods in their unprocessed form. So some examples of this, because there's so much fear-mongering around fat, especially animal fat, for example, a lot of our animal foods are not how we would find them in nature. For example, we're told to eat, you know, skinless chicken breasts, right? Because the skin has all the fat. Well, that's not how we would find it in nature. We would eat it with the skin, skin on chicken. We mm -hmm. eat all the organs from the animal foods. We would eat our dairy right. with the fat. Low-fat, non-fat dairy would not even be thing fat it used to be the most prized part um, of the food and then if we take it even a step further we can think about how our food is grown yeah. and raised and you know you go back before modern agriculture really before the the you know last hundred or so years we didn't have we didn't farm the way we farm our land now with high inputs of chemicals it was just so, farming yeah you know yeah. organic farming was just farming period <laughs> so I also incorporate the idea of food quality um, into it because we actually have like legitimate data showing higher nutrient levels in foods when they're raised the way that nature intended um, and also of course you don't have pesticide residues in food if you're not growing them with pesticides and this has some you know carryover effects on pregnancy because a lot of these chemicals are are not good to to fetal development. Hmm. Um, so in a nutshell, real food is, you know, made with simple ingredients that are as close to nature as possible and not processed in a way that removes nutrients. And so this would include vegetables, fruit, meat, poultry, fish, seafood, nuts, seeds, legumes, healthy fats. And then depending on everybody has their own, you know, um, food sensitivities or preferences or other issues going on. So sometimes this would also include dairy products and grains um, if that works well for a person. Mm -hmm. and, in, and how did that contrast to what you were taught? You know, the whole idea of unprocessed foods is, is not separate from conventional nutrition policy. Um, however, the general suggestion on foods that contain a lot of fats is to take out the fats. So mm. you have low fat dairy products, you have lean meats specified. You also have a really heavy emphasis on the diet containing a lot of carbohydrates, like 45 to 65% of carbohydrates. Um, they specify, mm -hmm. and by default, by the way, if you're eating a, a diet of um, a well-balanced diet of real food, you're probably going to be eating less carbs than half your diet just just to call it what it is um but also the guidelines only specify half your grains whole so 
in other words, they're endorsing, you know, sure, have your white bread and your white pasta and your, you know, crackers made with white flour. No big deal as long as you're getting some, some whole grains in there. And I just think the more, the more research you look at, the more you see that there's really not as much room as they think <laughs> for these empty carbohydrates. They just don't offer any nutrition and they take the place of more nutrient-dense foods. So I definitely disagree um, on that part. And then there's also, just from the prenatal nutrition perspective, there's sort of foods that are taboo or, should, or they say should be limited um, for a variety of reasons, whether it's food safety or the mercury and fish issue um, that I also take issue with. Okay, so that was the that was the main focus of your first book, Real Food for Gestational Diabetes. And then that turned out to be a hit. That's wonderful. I'm really, really happy to hear that. And I'm wondering how that came to be. How did you yeah, market good question. it? Um, most of my marketing was actually on 100% on my end. So what we're doing right now interviewing for a podcast. That was mm -hmm. a lot of what I did. So I reached out to yep. many, many different podcasters um, and was on a lot of shows. I did guest posts for other people's blogs and talked a lot about it myself. I mean, I had already been in business for myself with a pretty popular blog for several years before I had written the book. So I already had somewhat of a following. Um, so that definitely helped. And then speaking at mm -hmm. conferences as well. So um, speaking at like midwifery conferences and just uh, I spoke at Paleo FX, just getting out to a bigger, broader audience. And it kind of took on a mind of its own, I think, because nobody was filling that niche. You know, there's there's a lot of people talking about uh, I don't know, mm -hmm. a lot of people talking about prenatal nutrition or a lot of people talking about low carb or a lot of people talking about fill in the blank type two diabetes, but not many people were talking about gestational diabetes. So there hadn't really been a comprehensive resource and not a new resource maybe on the topic and certainly nothing from my perspective because I was the, the first dietitian to dare suggest that a woman could eat lower carbohydrate than the current right. recommendations. And from what I hear from people who have found me um, was that they heard it recommended in like a, an online forum on gestational mm -hmm. diabetes. People tried the conventional diet, had high blood sugar, and then they'd get referred to somebody would say, oh, you know, I followed real food for gestational diabetes. My blood sugar is way better. I didn't end up needing insulin and they'd recommend it. And so it had sort of a snowball effect. I mean, Great. it was it's just more effective than conventional diet therapy. And then people talk about it. So, so you have a new book, Real Food for Food for Pregnancy, coming out this month, right? Yes. Well, tell me about that. So, yeah. So, Real Food for Pregnancy, I feel like, is a a natural progression from the first book. Mm -hmm. um, within a few months of publishing that first book, I started getting asked, "Do you have a recommendation for a prenatal nutrition book?" And I didn't, <laughs> and I <laughs> scoured the market looking for the different books that were out there, and I was pretty disappointed by what I found. I either found books that were just rehashing the conventional guidelines um, or I found books that were contrary to those guidelines but didn't have any evidence to back up why they were different and if their suggestions were effective or, or evidence-based. And so I was like, okay, eventually I will be writing this book. <laughs> it, was, it had been mm -hmm. mulling around in my mind for for a while, but I had to get the book out on gestational diabetes first. And then seeing that there was a demand for it, it was like, okay, I will, I will eventually do this. Of course, in that time frame, I got pregnant and had a baby. So that had to all happen first before I had the mental capacity to actually work on book number two. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> thankfully I, I did get my brain back, my brain power back after having a kiddo. And, um, and here I am. So yeah, it was just a natural, natural progression really. So was your perspective on, um, you know, how we approach prenatal nutrition, did it change through the course of your prenatal care? It did in some, in some ways. I, how it changed mostly was, I think, my passion for getting the information out there, not necessarily the actual information. There's little things that, of course, get refined as you read more research, like my understanding about 
salt needs in pregnancy, for example, has changed quite a bit based on what I've read. I didn't realize how important it is for women to get enough salt during pregnancy, probably because I had been so entrenched in you know, conventional policy where they're always recommending low salt, low salt, low salt. So little things um, shifted based on what I've read mm-hmm. in the research, but as a whole, you know, the focus on real foods and um, not overdoing carbohydrates, especially refined carbohydrates and the importance of you know, the qualities of food, that part didn't shift too much. What did shift mostly was um, feeling that I didn't get any education from my providers on nutrition. Now, granted, of course, like they they knew my background, so they probably didn't want to bother. But you know, the most I got was just a pamphlet. Right. Yeah. And when you're pregnant, you realize that yeah. almost <laughs> nothing is within your control. Like the only thing that's within your control is what foods you put in your body, how you move your body and how you handle stress. And maybe if you want to lump sleep into the stress part of it, Mm -hmm. all of this lifestyle stuff was not discussed. And it was a huge like light bulb moment for me that, you know, I'm probably one of the small percentage of women who knows that food and all this lifestyle stuff can make a big difference and has the ability to read and understand complex research and distill it down to practical things you can implement on a daily basis. But I'm not being told any of this stuff. It's sort of just like you go to your appointment and it's like they weigh you, they check your blood sugar or blood pressure rather. Um, They, uh, they check your urine and, and that's kind of it. And then you're like out the door and, it's all reactive. It's not. Proactive. You discuss the tests that you have to get, you know, that month or the next month. But yeah, you're right. Did you go to an obstetrician for your care, or did you see a midwife, or was there a combination? It was. Uh, it it actually wasn't an OBGYN, but it was a family practice doctor. I was mm-hmm. pregnant in Alaska, so mm-hmm. we actually mm-hmm. didn't have an OBGYN in the area right. <laughs> that I have. Yeah, to and family practice doctors tend to be more holistic you know, just as a group, you know, because they see people from, I don't know, in the nursing, we'd say from crib to crypt, you know, you see, they they look at the whole person throughout a lifetime, and and they tend to be a little bit more holistic. Um, And midwives tend to have more time to even be more so. But yeah. um, Yeah, yeah. For my observation, um, midwives tend to be much more much more aware of the nutrition component and also spend more time in visits to talk about all those um, lifestyle things where I think just it's not necessarily the person, it's just the, the model of care is set up to be, you know, quick mm-hmm. visits and insurance reimbursement, all these things that there's just not time to discuss it. Um, but also right. in my case, it right. didn't seem like there was even interest to discuss it either. It was just like, okay, well, you're pretty right. healthy right. and your weight gain's good and your blood pressure is good. All right, see you later. And and that was it. And it was like, of course, we could Bye-bye. be doing, we just could be doing more. Um, and women want to be proactive during their pregnancies. This, the, yeah. From what I've observed, I mean, pregnant women are some of my favorite clients to work with because they're, they come to you saying, can I do more? What can I do? And that's like completely opposite of a lot of the other groups of clients that I've come across in the past. So I knew that I wasn't the only one who was feeling that way. And I felt like for the women who do really want to, you know, take control of their health and be super proactive during their pregnancy to just, you know, there's no guarantees, but I call it like stacking the deck in your favor. You can actually reduce the risk of a number of different complications and adverse outcomes by getting better nutrition Mm -hmm. and taking really good care of yourself. And it's just a matter of, you know, how to do that, why it works and, and yeah, getting the message out. Seems like right now, a lot of current prenatal food guidelines are, you know, it's the pamphlet. It's the list of foods you should eat and foods you can't eat. And it's pretty strident. And, you know, we, as you mentioned earlier, we have kind of gotten into this food fear culture where there are so many foods that are off limits and women are given so many instructions about what they can and can't put into their mouths. And it can be kind of, um, oh gosh, 
you know, there aren't many times in your life where, except for childhood, where you're told exactly what you can and can't do. And the expectations are so high for, you know, what you can and can't do. And it's kind of, um, it's a little patronizing. Yes. Yeah. It's, you know, when I come at this wearing my feminist lens, it's um, diminutizing. And instead of going at it, this approach where you cannot eat these foods, but instead spend time telling women, you know, what they can and should and, you know, giving more information. Yes. Yeah. And I think some of this stems from, you know, I've I've worked in a variety of places from, you know, uh, public hospitals and, you know, very low income prenatal clinic to Beverly Hills, you know, clients who are private pay. Um, and there's, so there's, you know, the, the, the government guidelines have to get it. Like I completely get why, why we are where we are with the guidelines being very mm-hmm. black and white of, especially on the foods to avoid list. And I have a whole section in the new book on that because I find that really frustrating. And like you said, patronizing <laughs> one of, one of the researchers I came across actually said it was, they are rather punitive because the relative risk of actually getting sick from these foods is quite small. Um, but nonetheless, I feel like there's they no. freaking women out. Yeah, you know? they're freaking women out. Women they're come freaking in. women out. Yeah, and they're making pregnancy this minefield of dangers. Like, right. I literally got an email from a woman. It was been quite a while ago, who said that she'd had a turkey and brie sandwich before she knew she was pregnant, and she spent her entire pregnancy terrified that her baby was going to have some sort of terrible damage from soft oh, no. cheese and oh, deli no. meat. And I'm thinking, honey. Yeah. What did they he, do to you? How was the I sandwich, know. hun? It's crazy. <laughs> it's crazy. And and it's because of yes, it could happen to some women, but the numbers are so 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 small. Now, of course, yeah, no and let me throw out those numbers by the way. Please do. Using data from the FDA, researchers estimate one case of listeria. That's the infection she was worried about, by the way. One right. case of listeria infection per 83,000 servings of deli meat or one case of listeria uh-huh. per 5 million servings of soft cheese consumed by pregnant women. The yeah. relative risk is very, very yeah. small. Um, so it's funny that we put all this focus on this and to play devil's advocate, about 50% of foodborne illnesses are actually from raw fruits and vegetables. Nobody tells pregnant women to not have spinach salad yeah. or to not eat an apple. But then we have all these rules about soft cheese and deli meat, which, yes, they could right. contain a more harmful type of bacteria than you would usually find in fruits and vegetables. However, the relative risk is very, very, very small. So it's silly. It's silly. That's all I could say. Yeah. But, you know, we can tie it all back a few lengths to, yes. you know, uh, it's all built around don't get sued. You know, you got to tell women these things so that nobody goes back and sues you or nobody goes back and sues the food industry. It's all about that. It's not actually about what's in the best interest of women and babies. It's yes. about that. And ironically, yeah. I'll point out the there's a really interesting study of Australia that looked at nutrient intake for women who consciously limited their consumption of foods that could be potentially listeria containing. So like the deli meat and the soft cheese versus Mm -hmm. women who didn't. And Mm -hmm. the women who Mm -hmm. super limited their intake of potentially listeria containing foods actually had lower nutrient intake um, for a number of different nutrients and really important Mm -hmm. ones like folate, iron, vitamin E, calcium. Like, so we have to just be really careful when we're weighing the benefits and the risks. I think it makes a lot more sense to, Yes, have a focus on food safety, which we should all have at all times, but be, you know, uber diligent about food safety. Mm -hmm. Trust your super strong sense of smell that you usually get during pregnancy. And if something smells off, don't have it. But I don't think it makes sense for us to completely throw out whole categories of food just because there's this very small relative risk of getting sick. And I think we have to also weigh the opposing risks, you know, of not getting enough nutrition. So like right. eggs with runny yolks, for example, that's another good one. <clears throat> I've had a lot of pregnant women 
say they're not eating eggs anymore because the only way they, that they like them is over easy. So now they're doing cereal. Well, the cereal's fortified, so I should be good. Well, now they've replaced a complete protein, which has an excellent source of choline, really important for brain development, um, a food that's going to leave them, you know, satisfied with their blood sugar balanced, starting off the day on such a great foot. And now you're replacing it with refined cereal that's been fortified with a handful of vitamins that is going to spike your blood sugar, leave you with tons of sugar cravings and, uh, you know, super hungry all day long for all the wrong foods. How does this work sure. for us? You know, yeah. um, the risk of, I'll throw out another stat on the eggs, like the risk of an egg containing salmonella is like one in 30,000. Right. So again, very small relative risk, right. but the, the, what that looks like for a woman's overall nutrient intake can be pretty substantial with just one or two of these little changes. Yeah. One thing that I worry a lot about is that, you know, for a lot of women in the U.S., and this is something I think you're going to be able to relate to coming from Alaska, is that, you know, organic produce from whole food, it isn't affordable. Very good affordable. question. It isn't available. You know, for, for a lot of women, the closest store is three bus rides away. So how do women in these situations eat real food? This is a lot of women. This is the majority of women. And, and so often, you know, we're, we're speaking to an audience of women who have the resources to go get whatever they want to eat. Yes. But far more women aren't in that situation. I think in a lot of cases, there's always going to be a good, better, best scenario. And I've worked yeah. with a lot of women who receive a majority of their food actually through the WIC program. So I'm uber familiar with that whole situation. First of all, I think, A, even within yeah. women who are getting food assistance, you can make better choices based on what you're given. I mean, we had a big challenge with our women, especially who had gestational diabetes, who were receiving WIC because there's massive quantities of juice and cereal given, which are really high in carbohydrates and spike their blood sugar. So we had to really pick and choose yeah. which foods they would get and how much of those foods would be reasonable for them to consume and then consider what they would do with the excess of those foods that are just not going to help their blood sugar at all. But small little things like encouraging women to eat the eggs with the yolks. A lot of the women that I saw had actually been instructed to throw away the yolks due to outdated information they were given on cholesterol. And unfortunately, that's the most nutrient-dense part of the egg. And like I mentioned, the choline thing, but there's a bunch of other nutrients in egg yolks that are very, very beneficial, mm -hmm. particularly during pregnancy and breastfeeding, early childhood. So something as small as encouraging them to eat the eggs with the yolks was helpful. Um, if we stand back and take the fear out of fat, a lot of the less expensive or lesser expensive cuts of meat are the ones that contain more fat or the tougher cuts of meat that benefit from slow cooking. But if you've been told that what you should be having is just boneless, skin, skinless chicken breast and, you know, lean meat, then you might not be getting those foods or you might not be, you know, making bone broth. A lot of butchers give that away for free or making organ meats. A lot of women are turned away from eating organ meats, especially liver during pregnancy. And those are extremely inexpensive and highly, highly nutrient dense. Um, the vegetable component is tricky when it comes to like the whole pesticide residue thing. I think this is definitely a case of like good, better, best. And it's best to have vegetables, period, regardless of how they're grown. So if uh, finances are, are the reason for making a choice on organic versus not organic, absolutely do not organic yeah, it is. and eat it versus <laughs> not eat any vegetables whatsoever. Sometimes you just have to get really creative about how to make it work. So I would do a lot of sort of creative out of the box thinking when it came to food, like watching sales at the grocery store and buying meat in bulk and keeping the freezer or batch cooking right. in larger quantities. Um, even just cooking at home versus eating out, you can often save a lot of money in that way. So sometimes it's a matter of sort of shifting perspectives. Of course, this is very challenging. If say you're working with a woman who's working like three jobs, which I, I worked with these women and that's super challenging. It just is. I mean, the, it's the, the time, the time, there's no time for any of it. And so sometimes, again, we just have to get really creative about the best ways to make it work. Yeah. And also, you know, if you, 
I, I always think back to, you know, this, the story of this woman who told me, you know, for me, grocery shopping is I get home from work, the kids are home from school and her kids were little, like, you know, three kids under the age of seven. I get them a snack. Then we walk to the bus stop and we get on the bus and we do two transfers and we get to a grocery store that's about seven miles away because that's the closest one. And then they make choices. Are they going to get fresh produce? Are they going to get frozen produce? You know, and she she talked the whole situation through and then about how she has to get these things all back <clears throat> on the bus back up to her apartment. And for most women, it's just not, it's not that, you know, it, we have so many different ways that we're, we're going about this big issue and my heart goes out to how hard it has to be, you know? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I know. And I'm in full agreement. It's really, really challenging when, when you're living on the margins and living with, you know, not as many resources and it's hard. It's also just hard to make self-care and good food a priority mm -hmm. when things like shelter <laughs> are, mm -hmm. and just paying your basic bills to keep your utilities on. Like, obviously that takes priority. Like your, your safety as a human being takes right. priority over, right. over food. Um, and ho I, my hope is that with some of these supplemental food assistance programs, I, I would really hope that they'd take into consideration, you know, getting quality nutrient dense foods in the hands of moms over keeping everything low fat, because a lot of where we've ended up with our recommendations are from trying to keep everything uber low fat. That's how we get to, you know, the cereal and they get the low fat milk and they're some of them are told to throw the eggs out, egg yolks out, certainly not all, or they're suggested to get low fat cheese. Because of course, anytime you're taking the fat out, A, you're taking some nutrients out, you're also taking necessary calories out, mm -hmm. which then have to be made up in other places. And oftentimes they're not made up in more nutrient dense places. They're made up with sugary drinks and, and whatnot. So mm -hmm. my hope is that eventually some of these programs will be... Um, revamped where the food choices that they're allowed to get because they have allotments for which types of food and varieties of food they're able to get. Mm -hmm. I would hope that those would shift towards more nutrient dense things versus fortified cereals and juices. And I don't know how soon that will happen, but I think that would make a big difference if we could, if we could somehow get the public policy shifted. Yeah. I think that we may be facing an uphill battle you know, at this current moment in time, um, you know, on a national level. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. We could talk about that another time. <laughs> <laughs> well, Lily, you and I have been talking for quite a while. I have a couple more questions for you, but um, I want to find out where can people pick up the new book, Real Food for Pregnancy? Sure. You can uh, find, find it on the website, realfoodforpregnancy.com. I'm giving away the first chapter for free there if anybody just wants to take a peek and decide before you buy. Um, and you can also find it on Amazon. It's available in both print and Kindle. Great. Cool. Okay. So how would you fill in the blank on this statement? Nobody ever told me that. Ooh, that's a tricky question. I know. Nobody ever told me that... Hmm. <laughs> You've stumped stump me. I stumped you. I, well, I'm I'm trying to decide whether to take it from a nutrition perspective or a uh, business perspective, or maybe you I'll can take do more it, than one perspective. Maybe do, I'll do take it from. Um, maybe <laughs> I'll take it from both. A combination. Nobody ever told me that. Um, healing from childbirth would take so long. Mm. And, why, yeah. and why I say this is that I'm actually somebody who bounced, quote unquote, bounced back relatively quickly. So people are like, wow, I can't even tell you've had a baby. But internally and on a nutritional like repletion level, on, a, um, on an emotional level, it takes 
so long for you to feel like yourself again um, yeah, as a mother. And I think part, part, of, part of why I think so many women, including myself, are super blindsided by just how challenging it is to, to heal. And I mean that on so many different levels, you know, as I've already said, physical, like spiritual, mental, um, like muscle connective tissue level. <laughs> it yeah. takes so long for you to feel like yourself. And I feel like a lot of that is because we spend so much time focused on the pregnancy itself and especially focused on the birth. You know, you have all these classes about birth. Like I did like an eight week series class on birth with with like a, a childbirth educator. And then I also did the classes at the hospital because I, I couldn't be too prepared, right? We may as well do both and just fill in all the blanks and right. read books. I didn't ring, read a single book or go to a single class about postpartum and about caring right. for yourself postpartum and adjusting to life with a new baby. And I actually decided to include a whole chapter in the book on the fourth trimester because of that, because I think it's a huge oversight on our care. And it's funny as, as a mom, you start to notice how many people start to take up this grassroots effort of educating women on postpartum. You know, I'm not the only mom who's saying this. There's been, there's plenty of them out right, there and there's right. plenty more before me and there will be plenty more after me because it still is yeah. not central. And I think it's really helpful a to look at the data on what we see now, like what we see from the research on, for example, how long it takes for your muscles and your pelvic floor and ligaments and everything to go back to normal. That takes like a year. Everyone's like, oh yeah, six weeks, go back to exercise. Your body is still different for at least a year, just on a structural level. Right. Um, that would have been really reassuring right. to me to know, like coming in. Um, although everyone... Yeah. And for, and, and for a lot of women in the world, they're having another pregnancy within that year. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And like, yes, that's, that's huge too. Pregnancy spacing. Certainly they talk about birth control at your postpartum visit, but they don't talk about it in the context of how long is optimal for you to wait to get pregnant again so you can replete your nutrient mm -hmm. stores so your muscles and ligaments can heal so all this stuff gets back mm -hmm. to normal. And there's actually hardcore data on that, by the way, but yeah, they don't... Yeah, A couple years is Yeah, good. they don't tell you. It's called inner, yeah. inner pregnancy interval. There's a lot of data on it. Um, there's just not a whole lot of discussion on all of this as a whole. There are all these traditional postpartum practices which I actually look at um, in that chapter where there's this sort of sacred first 40 days to first six weeks-ish of time of mm -hmm. hardcore, like buckled down, mother is with baby and healing and everybody else is taking care of everything for her. Like she yeah. rests and nurses and eats food that is cooked for her. <laughs> and that's it. Yeah. And in our culture, it's the opposite. Um, right. And... She's supposed to be back to work by six exactly. weeks and she's supposed to be killing or it. Sometimes yeah. two weeks. I mean, our maternity yeah. with no maternity policy, it's absolutely crazy. Um, right. So, yeah, it's it's wild. And I, I would hope it's that wild. this discussion becomes a, a broader one. I would hope that eventually this mm -hmm. is brought into prenatal care. Again, I think there's some providers that do a great job of talking about this and helping with this. Like I had a doula and she, you know, checked in on me postpartum and was uber helpful about helping to prep for it, but it still wasn't, it wasn't from enough people and from enough angles. I think if it was brought into like conventional prenatal care where it was like a discussion as you get to, you know, third trimester zone, like, Hey, here's this lengthy pamphlet on postpartum planning. Yeah. How do you plan to rest and recover and receive support from people? And that puts right. it in the perspective of A, it's not all on you and you don't have to do it all. And B, plan for it because it's a much easier to right. plan for it than to be sort of scrambling when you're in the moment. And I was certainly in, in that. Yeah in that realm of sort of scrambling to try to, you know, find things to help me out early on. And oh, I did have, too. you know, my husband oh, had two too. weeks. I had my mom come up and help. I had my mother-in-law come up and help. And still it was like, it would have been really nice to have 
um, pre-planned that out a little more. So absolutely. Right. I was blindsided right. by uh, postpartum. Yeah. Okay. Well, then my last question for you is this. Where are you in your life in terms of motherhood? Well, my son is nearing two. Um, I feel like I'm at a really good place now where I feel like I've found found that work-life balance. I'm through that tricky, you know, first year plus, I think it's just very um, fly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> and I think, um, yeah, <laughs> you know, scramble, yeah, scramble mode. It's <laughs> just whatever is going to work for right now mode, sleep deprivation mode. Yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like I'm at a, a, a really good place. I feel like I'm, I'm through that, that tricky, tricky stage of like getting to know this new being, um, breastfeeding around the clock. It just, it takes so much out of you. It's, it's really, it's really exhausting with, with a new little one, even though it's also very rewarding and enjoyable. It is frankly exhausting. And, um, yeah, yeah. Frankly, it's exhausting. and it's really nice to, <laughs> you know, my son is very verbal, so it's, it's fun. We can have conversations now, you know, he can form complete sentences. And so there's, there's an exchange going on that's beyond that, um, cute cooing and <laughs> there's a two-way conversation it's not yeah. me talking to him and narrating right. the day now he can take over and narrate the day to me um so it's a lot of fun and yeah i feel like we're at a really fun stage oh great well lily it has been a pleasure to talk to you and i hope that everybody goes out and picks up the book because you've got a lot you've got a lot of information in there that they're not going to get at their office so thank you. That's true. Yeah. Thank you so much. I really appreciated our talk. Yeah. We'll talk again. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Mama said there'll be days like this. There'll be days like this. Mama said. Mama said. Mama said. Our guest today was Lily Nichols, and you can learn more about her at PilatesNutritionist.com. And you can find her book, Real Food for Pregnancy, everywhere books are sold. You can learn more about me at JeanFaulkner.com. Email me, gene at genefaulkner.com. Tweet me, at genefaulkner. Pick up a copy of my book, anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Target, wherever, your local bookstore. And if you want an autographed copy for your friend or family member, just go pick it up on my on my website, genefaulkner.com. I'll autograph it and I'll send it out super fast. Uh, also, go on over to wherever you pick up your podcast and leave me a good rating, will you? It helps this podcast bubble up on other people's search results. Send me your questions. And that's it for this week, guys. Common Sense Pregnancy and Parenting is produced by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures Studios. We'll talk again next week. Bye-bye. Someone will look at me.